Welcome to Backsliding to Glory, a progressive Christian podcast and community. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. Welcome to Backsliding to Glory. We're your hosts. I'm Joel. I'm Megan. And we are Backsliding to Glory. Megan, welcome back. Yes. We have a podcast. Thanks. It's like out there in the Yay! public and stuff. I know. They 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 can hear us. and <laughs> it's, it's like a real thing. You know, subscribe to us and, I don't know, follow us on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. You can do all of it, literally all of those things. So right yeah. here up front, you, you can follow us on Twitter, backslide the number two glory. Uh, backsliding to glory was too long. But everywhere else, we're backsliding to glory. We're on Facebook. You can join our group. Uh, there's a page to like and follow if you're if that's more your style. Uh, you can find us uh, at backslidingtoglory.com. But we're also in all the podcast apps now, Spotify, Stitcher. Woo-hoo. We're in Apple Podcasts. I, if, if there's an app that you listen to podcasts in that we're not in, if you will email me, backslidingtoglory at gmail.com, I will uh, try to make that happen. But the point is that from here on out, anybody you know that is a progressive Christian or interested in those sorts of ideas, uh, you should share this show with them. Tell them to subscribe wherever they like to listen to podcasts. Or if they don't listen to podcasts, point them to where you like to listen to podcasts and uh, show them how to do it. Megan, the topic for tonight's conversation or today's conversation, I I should say, top off of both of our minds when we started talking about what we were going to talk about in a progressive Christian podcast is the culture of poor shaming. And I think the mirror image of it, which is like this prosperity gospel thing that is central to uh, American Christianity. It is, it's so, it's so embedded. It's, it's so, it's embedded in our system. Like, like racism is Megan. And it's scary. It It absolutely is. It absolutely is. And it is very, very, very intertwined with what we see right now politically. And I know we like, aren't going to go super, super political with this podcast, but it is relevant, you know, where this, uh, worship of wealth intersects with where we are politically and, and, and our political choices that are ultimately moral choices. Oh, this one gets me fired up, Joel. So this started, <laughs> or at least it, the, the idea for this particular episode um, started for me when there was a um, epicurious job posting that got shared around on Twitter you know, like a, a huge deal on, on Twitter because Twitter is constantly looking for something to get outraged about. Um, and this one was a good one. Twitter in particular is journalist heavy. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a medium that, that writers and journalists use. So this one in particular, it was not only the Twitter outrage machine, but also the fact that Twitter is thick with journalists. And writers and people who know what it means to have a good gig and what it knows, what it means to have a terrible gig. You are absolutely right. Absolutely right. David Tamarkin was the one that set this all off. Site director for Epicurious. He posted a tweet saying, I've got an amazing job for a food writer who's at the beginning of her or his career. Here are the details. And it and it detailed a ton of responsibilities and, uh, uh, you know, pieces of the job. And then at the end, it also pointed out that it was going to be a full-time contractor, which in the state of New York, I'm pretty sure is illegal. And Twitter began to point that out. And in fact, in fact, there's some investigation going on into the thing, but 
Mm-hmm. My, the the thing that set me off about it, though, I, I didn't have anything to say about it because, I you know, I don't know. It's not the first crazy job that I've seen posted. But also, I had a take similar to yours, which was, hey, I've been in a position where I've taken crazy jobs before, too. And I thought you put it so wonderfully. Both sides of it are bad. It's terrible that there are companies that build their entire company off of the idea that you can underpay and uh, under support your employees, even take steps to not call them employees, call them contractors and things. So you don't have to care for them in any way uh, other than sending them a little bit of money, the the least uh, required amount of money. Embarrassingly small. But it's also, it's, yeah. it's terrible on the other side too, in that we make people feel guilty for jumping at a chance to make a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I personally have been in a position where I had to take a job that I knew was a crappy set of circumstances, whether it be just the pay or the benefits or the amount of hours that I was going to be asked to work or the kinds of work that I was going to be asked to do or the amount of profit that the corporation was going to make on my back. Like maybe the actual work is not terrible, but the commiserate value that the corporation is taking where you're providing all of that value. I've been in that position many times. At at the same time, though, Megan, you got to eat, right? Like Mm -hmm. gas has to go in the vehicle. You have to eat. Yeah. And and the children still require food three times a day and clothing. And uh, it's actually not easy to make money as a freelancer. Not only is it not, I mean, there are so many things about being a freelancer that is not easy to make money. First of all, you have to take 30% off the top of anything you make. And, you know, the jobs, every newspaper is laying off another 50 employees every week. The jobs are not uh, expanding, <laughs> you know? So the competition's high, the money's not great, and uh, you kind of sometimes have to take what you can get, especially when you're younger and especially when you're starting out. So it was this combination of like, I mean, my initial reaction was, you know, this guy posted this, this is a great job for somebody, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, this is neither great nor a job. <laughs> but, <laughs> but let's make sure we're shaming the guy and not anybody who's excited about taking this gig because... You got to do stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, we haven't overthrown the whole system yet. So shaming anybody who's participating in the system, especially at that level, like, let them go. Like, don't. You can't be mad at people for needing work. You can be mad at the guy for offering a terrible gig. Yes, that is a perfect way to put it. So let's, well, let's go back to. The, the first of all topic, let's let's talk a little bit about the prosperity gospel and the inherent connection of that to the idea of the American dream and how like central this whole thing is to our society, how insidious it is to our society. Mm-hmm. Because I, I do think it's something that even a lot of progressive Christians don't really smell. You know what I mean? Like they don't they don't feel mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. until they're faces are rubbed into it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I totally. think this is one of the main reasons why we have such a divide between, for instance, white liberals and African-American liberals. Mm-hmm. I like, I think this question of prosperity and the inherent value of wealth, not in a monetary way, mm-hmm. but in a admirable way, right? The American mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. culture in particular, and by export, all of Western culture 
in the world has basically adopted this idea that if you have money, that inherently makes you right. It is it is the modern equivalent of might makes right. And we've never gotten away from that in any way. We we do have this idea that the elite are corrupt, are uh, removed from normal people, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But that taint of elitism is never connected to the money somehow. <laughs> right? Right. Right. And, and we have this thing where we have these two opposing views that somehow we've doubly adopted that the elite are somehow corrupt, but also that if God cares about you, he will give you things like money and power. So God must like these elite people, even though they're obviously awful to the rest of us. So, I mean, it just like sort of builds this cycle of horrible theology and horrible understanding of uh, the rough ramifications of it and the really problematic ones are the way it then turns you to like okay so if somebody's poor that's because god doesn't love them like come on it's such a gross web of badness yes no a gross web of badness is a pretty good way to describe the whole thing that's really yeah that's I'm a writer for my job. <laughs> so good at this. Here's the thing that gets me. I just watched the wife and I just watched Vice the other day, which by the way, if we're doing movie corner very quickly, Vice is a great way to spend a few bucks and a and about a 2-hour span with your uh significant other if you want to be both entertained and informed. There was so much of the way that they reframed conservative policies and in particular economic conservative policies that bolted on to this idea of hard work and success being inherently affirming. (laughs) You know, if you succeed, that means it was right. Whereas we all know like part of success is also chance, just like part of failure is. And in the early part of the 20th century, we built a society that understood that, not only understood it, but but like optimized for it, right? We want people to take chances because that allows our society to leap forward, to do big things and and to make great change as a uh, you know, as a species. And the only way people can truly make those big risks on a broad basis, not just a handful of us, but the population at large, is if we have a solid safety net, is if those risks are minimized by the group as a whole, right? And and somewhere along the line, we just completely ditched that idea and It blows my mind, Megan, that we're so far from it today and not just so far from it, but like so far from it specifically because of the people that are pushing back against that idea of of a social network and, um, you know, a connectional relational society. It's the religious right. It it is your most conservative, your most fundamentalist, your most family oriented Americans tend to be also <laughs> screw you I'll get mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't understand the the mental and emotional gymnastics that you have to do uh to make that happen for yourself. You know, I think the sort of the sort of prosperity theology is part of those gymnastics. If you really believe that God 
blesses those who God favors, then yeah, it's easy to believe that some people are just lazy and some people don't deserve anything. And some people, you know, aren't willing to, to take the chances that you took or lay it on the line the way you did or whatever. So let's get into a little bit of personal stuff. Okay. What was your relationship with money growing up, for instance? Let's start there. Well, we didn't have any. <laughs> <laughs> like, we really didn't have any money. Uh, I come from a long line of people without any money on both sides, really. Well, sort of. Uh, it's been a few generations since anybody in my family had any money. You know, I'm from a rural area where people were farmers, and then they built some factories, and then everybody went to work in the factory, and then the factories closed, and then everybody was poor, which is a very common thing throughout rural America. In a lot of places, you saw it 50 years ago or 40 years ago or 30 years ago. And in some places, you're just seeing it now. And those places seem to be shocked by it. And those of us who are from the places, you know, where I'm from, the big factory was Smith Corona, which was a typewriter factory. Um, and my grandmother worked there. And yeah, they, they don't make typewriters anymore. So that factory closed a long time ago. And that area of central New York has been depressed ever since. But my relationship with money growing up was we did not particularly have any. My parents were very young when I was born. My mom is one of 10, uh, born to. Her mom worked in a factory that made chains, and her dad was a baker. Um, my dad was raised by a single mom, which was not really a thing in the 50s, but there they were. And she was kind of a tough broad, but she, you know, worked several jobs at a time and managed to raise four kids. But neither of my parents really came up with a full-fledged safety net. So one of the stories about my family, and I, I often bring it up when Ronald Reagan comes up, is my family was made homeless because of Ronald Reagan. Not desperately destitute homeless, but we, we did not have a home. My mother was the night manager, and my father was the groundskeeper at the county nursing home uh, in the county I grew up in, which county nursing homes and parish nursing homes in Louisiana, where we have parishes instead of counties, were... Uh, a thing in every county or parish in the United States, and so, some had several. They were a thing from the sort of Great Depression, you know, uh, FDR, New Deal era of ending the Depression. They built these homes. It was the place where old folks or people with severe disabilities who couldn't afford other types of homes would go and be taken care of. And they were... I think probably in some places they were pretty brutal institutions, but in other places they evolved with the times. The one my parents worked for was a pretty progressive, happy place. My Nana, my dad's mom, worked for the one in the county, the next county over. They were, you know, they were underfunded, but generally clean and there was food and the people were nice. Anyway, so the story is that when I was a little kid, we lived there. We had an apartment because my dad was the groundskeeper. We had an apartment in in the nursing home, which contributes to a great deal of my constantly seeking approval now because I had like 400 old people clapping at me constantly when I was a really little kid. <laughs> um, so it maybe wasn't that many, but it was a lot. It was, you know, a few dozen at any, any given time. Um, <laughs> and I, I had dance routines and whatnot, and they knit me sweaters. It was all very cute. But Reagan closed all the county homes. He closed them all privatized all nursing care. So my family, my parents no longer had jobs because they worked for the, the public nursing home, which sounds like such a crazy thing because in very few places do we still have public nursing homes. We instead just 
pay via Social Security, Medicaid, to put people into private homes or home health care when it's available or just nothing at all sometimes. And (laughs) poverty among the elderly has skyrocketed. But yeah, so after that, so we didn't have a place to live anymore. So my grandma had a house. So we, I think, stayed with her for a little while while my parents uh, scraped it together and bought a trailer. And then I proceeded to grow up in a trailer park. So yeah, that's my exciting story about not having any money. We were never like full-on destitute. You know, we always had clothes, probably hand-me-downs more often than not. We always had food, though, you know, (laughs) we didn't always have steak, that's for sure. And we definitely had some government peanut butter and cheese sometimes. So, you know, I don't know. I'm sure there are people out there who are like, well, she's just bitter because she didn't have it. Well, yeah, maybe. No, but it's like, look, look, (laughs) here's 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 the rule for our ongoing conversation. Everyone's deal is their own deal. You are allowed to experience your own set of circumstances and feel good and bad and joy and sorrow in those own set of circumstances Mm -hmm. while understanding that there are always those around us that have worse circumstances and those around us who have better circumstances. Like, but, but the fact that your neighbor is eating a turd sandwich while you're only eating, you know, a, a, dry sandwich doesn't make your dry sandwich not a sad story right like the turd sandwich is worse clearly sure 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 sure. we're not you know we're not comparing anyway i hate it i hate it when somebody anytime oh yeah yeah anytime somebody begins to tell a story and and someone else has to butt in to tell you why your experience is not valid that's what i say to you megan yeah no so Oh, yeah, I, 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 I'm not so worried about the people who, uh, who would try to out-poverty me because actually I don't tend to feel that from poor people. Um, maybe it's a thing some places, but I think most of us who grew up poor are like, yeah, man, we were poor. Yep, that sucks. That, you know, As opposed to the people who are wealthy who are like, well, if you were poor, it's because your parents had you too young. <laughs> well, if you were poor, it's because your grandparents didn't work hard enough to send your parents to college, that sort of thing. So it's like, eh. It's crazy. I've never I've never met anyone who has told another human being that they had children too young who also believes in free birth control or ready available access to Isn't that fascinating? Uh, reproductive health. <laughs> now there is some mental gymnastics. Like really y'all. <laughs> One or the other. Come on. So my my upbringing was a couple of rungs on the ladder above yours. Oh, look at you, fancy! Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, we had we had we had fancier. Uh, we had the store brand uh, take home stuff uh, sometimes. Oh yeah, nice. no, but like um, nice. my mom was a educator. She worked for the school board uh, in one capacity or another my entire life, basically. And uh, my father was a contractor, and there were lots of years. Mom and I have talked about this, you know, since then. Since I've become a contractor. And I said, yo, how, how did dad do? How am I doing? Sometimes I feel like I'm not holding it together. And she goes, oh, baby, you're, there were years your dad did great, made real good money, but better money than a lot of our friends did. Then there were other years <laughs> where, <laughs> you know, it'd be a whole month. We'd, we, we wouldn't bring anything home. There's no checks at all, uh, which is the contractor lifestyle sometimes. Sure. Uh, that is the nature of the thing. It's like the freelancer lifestyle they are very. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So anyway, we we had a very solid, I would say, middle class, small, south 
you know, 1980s uh, standard of living. We, we, we got plenty of toys. I never felt like we went without on anything, but at the same time, like we didn't go to Disneyland or Disney world. We mm-hmm. didn't take, you know, we went to hot Springs a couple of summers <laughs> when I was growing up. That was about it. You know, hot Springs, Arkansas, but what I did know, though, was that work was expected, uh, work was prized, work was valued, in particular in my family, mental work or professional work, you know, white collar work was prized higher. My dad was a laborer. He was a, a carpenter and he wanted desperately for me not to be, you know, he really wanted me to sit behind a desk and to push papers and that was the big thing that I got as far as economics. That was the lesson that actually hit home. Now, they both, mom and dad both preached, you tithe first, you pay yourself second, uh, you know, that 10% savings, and then you pay all your bills. And yet, I know for a fact they didn't live that exactly. I think they were always pretty good mm-hmm. about tithing, but the the savings they weren't always great about. And they, I know for a fact they got heavily in debt a couple of different times while we were growing up. But like, honestly, having four children myself, I don't understand how you don't go heavily in debt sometimes. Like all it takes is two or three emergencies in a row. Yeah. And then even someone that is well prepared, even someone that is uh, well positioned in their career, even somebody who has a great network to call on, even somebody who's got great credit to start with. Mm -hmm. Again, you're only two, three, four emergencies away. It's just about the size of the emergency. Right, Megan? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In a world where we literally all face that, like there are so few of the American populace who live without that concern, even even very well off people, people that are making one hundred thousand dollars a year. The standard of living that they are living probably puts them two or three major emergencies in a row away from serious issues monetarily. When we all are living this experience why can we not talk about it? Why can we not all admit the anxiety that it adds to our life? Why can we not forgive that anxiety in one another? And why can we not particularly take that experience and turn to the least of those among us, those that are hit the hardest in those economic times, those that have had the five, the six, the seven emergencies in a row and end up in serious financial straits, and give them grace. It, it blows my mind. Like, what is the disconnect? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I do legitimately think that this theology of God blessing some who are worthy is part of where that disconnect is coming from. Because I think it's permeated. I don't think it's only, I don't think you only hear it in Joel Austin's no. church. I think it has permeated culture in such a way that is really damaging. Yeah. Here's a good example, Megan. My, I feel like in so many ways, my church does a great job across the board, even though they are much more conservative as a body than I would like them to be. They do a great job serving their community in food missions. They do a great job in serving their community in outreach. They do a great job in helping with the sick. They do a great job in following up with the college and the youth in this town. They do, they do a great job all over the place. Here's one place where they don't do a great job, I feel like. The only thing thing that they're offering as far as financial education is Dave Ramsey classes. There are scholarships for those classes. And listen, I'll be the first one to admit that lots of what Dave Ramsey teaches is effective. His systems are 
a means to establish stable finances and to plan for your future. They are good, basic understandings of economics so that people who've never been told how to balance a checkbook before and things simple as that can then begin to build something. But his entire system and his whole philosophy comes from poor people aren't trying hard enough. And every day he is shaming those. That's the first thing. If you want to get into a little bit more of my problems with him, never once on his public broadcast, which covers the entire, not just the country, but the whole world in a lot of different places uh, gets that broadcast. Never once has a single caller on his show uh, been a uh, member of the LGBT plus community. And you cannot tell me that some wow. of the LGBT plus community are not followers of his economic plan. So again, I think that that's coming from a screener and that's a policy. And it, maybe it's not Dave directly, but his organization, his show has decided that uh, their connection to their brand of Christianity says we can't have any gay people on the show. And I say that's some, that's some <laughs> And I'll I'll That's beep that, uh, but it is it's some bull. <laughs> I also That's the way I feel about it. I mean, the the little bit that I've really interacted with with Dave Ramsey's thing, I heard, I sort of remember reading something early on and being like, "Don't you like literally have to have any money at all to start this? <laughs> like to do this plan, it sort of requires that you start from somewhere." And I remember being like broke and young and a nonprofit worker and being like, "I." Well, but one of the first of all, one of the things is, yeah, his class costs money. But however, most good organizations, especially like our church, for instance, they they have a thing you you can appeal and they have scholarships available. They'll send you through the program if you're really in a hard way with no cost to you. But at the same time, yeah, you're sort of right, because like his foundational principle is if you're deeply in debt and your job is not enough to pull you out of it, then you should sell all of the things that you have first off and start from there. (laughs) Like, cool. Do you have stuff to sell? I don't really worth selling. Like, okay, book sale. Well, and it goes to an, another thing that we've got linked in the show notes here. I'm going to have linked in the show notes here. You you had a great tweet about the um, Queer Eye show and, and the idea of luxury for poor people. Mm. The thing that I hear around here on a regular basis is iPads. Oh, my God. Did you see that kid had an iPad and yet they were at... The welfare office or they were using yeah. food stamps at the counter at walmart i'm like it's no, first of all it is none of your business how and why that ipad showed up in that child's hand you don't know what the support system is you don't know what grandma or grandpa might have given it to him you don't know what second or third hand-me-down generation ipad that is but mostly again it's none of your business but the final thing is and this is the point that i want you to expound upon a little bit poor people can and should have some quote unquote luxury. Guess what? Just because I am broke, just because I'm behind on bills, just because I don't have the income that you have, doesn't mean that I don't deserve anything nice. We all understand I'm not going to get everything nice, right? Like I'm not asking for the Walton's life. Okay. I don't want it. Thanks. I should have clothes clothes that fit is was your big point, right? Clothes yeah. that fit. Clothes that fit. A haircut. A haircut. When's the last time, Megan, that I and look, and I'm not poor. When's the last time that I got a haircut my wife didn't give me? Honest to God, I don't remember. 
You know why? Because yeah. I can't justify the twenty five bucks. Right. No, it's a um. So what I what I said was I I marathoned because I'm it's the only way I watch television. I just watch it all in a row for eight hours. Is uh, so I I watched the new season and it just struck me that. This is really a big part of what they're doing. These guys who I think are lovely and funny and kind and good and doing really difficult work of going often into people's homes who, you know, may have never knowingly met a gay person before or may have voted against those people's rights or whatever. So they're doing this work. But a big part of what they're doing is telling lower middle class or working class people that they deserve to have pants that fit and to have a haircut that looks nice and to buy an avocado because you want one. The reality is a lot of those people would not be able to afford that thing, but they should be able to afford it because income inequality should not be what it is. That it is not a ridiculous thing to say, hey, we are a land of abundance. There is plenty to go around. There's plenty to go around the whole world if a few people didn't own most of everything. And everyone should be able to have, you know, a couch that's comfortable and feels good and a living room or a home that they can walk into at the end of the day that feels like home and a haircut that looks good and feels good, and even a massage after a hard week of physical work, those are not luxuries that are unreasonable for people. They're not five Mercedes in a garage. A a, a nice haircut three times a year is not, should not be uh, an untenable luxury for people. Was it Andrew Yang who had... A culture of abundance on his platform list. One of the one of the Democratic. That's that sounds it's Yang. either Yang. It might have been <laughs> might have been Mayor Pete. I I can't. Remember. Those are those are my two those are my two current favorites, Megan. I've sort of fallen in love with both of them. They've won me over <laughs> in the past couple of days. I, I tell you, Andrew Yang was talking about circumcision, like. Nobody talks about circumcision as a bad thing. I was so proud of him. And he had to walk it back a little bit because everybody got mad. He's, are you ang- are you angry course, at the Jews? It's not about it's think, not about the Jews. Calm down. Yeah, yeah. I know. I think I think we do have to be careful with always when when and and we can discuss it at length on a show sometime or something, but you know, the the timbre of the circumcision discussion online becomes very anti-Semitic very quickly and anti anti-Muslim very quickly. But I do think it's probably fair for reasonable people people who uh, are trying to push for a Medicare for all platform to say, okay, well, what are we willing to cover and what aren't we? This is a cosmetic surgery, probably. It's been agreed upon by the uh, by the medical industries in all the countries that have public health care that this is not a thing that, that public health care will pay for. I think it's probably all right to have that discussion. And I think probably it's possible to have that discussion without being, um, you know, you know what's you know it's really weird, <laughs> Megan. It turns out anything at all, if you give it to the internet, they will make it anti-Semitic. W- they will turn into dicks. That's that's oh. what happens. It turns out. I also super don't care what people do with their with their children. It's just I do think if we want Medicare for all, we may have to look at some of the things that 
doctors do that are a little bit of a, of a racket. That again, absolutely deserves a full topic. And what we should do is we should get, we should, we should find somebody who's uh, very passionate, who's an activist in that area. I've got a couple of ideas actually about people that we might could talk to because it's something that I've only begun to look at in the past few years. But yeah, so anyway, one of those two had on their platform, literally those words, a culture of abundance as part of like the very mm -hmm. basis from which they're running everything. I think that is very much something that we on the left, both politically and theologically, need to start focusing on. We do have plenty as a species, as a planet, as, as a theological table, right? We got plenty of grace over here for everybody. There's not a, mm -hmm. we're, we're not, <laughs> I personally at least do not believe in the select. There is not a number that we're waiting to fill and then we're all the rest of us <laughs> left out. So if that's the case, I, I do think that concept of a culture of abundance is something that we can all do both in like our individual conversations as, as Christians and as people, but then also mm -hmm. corporately as a body, I think we need to be pushing that more because when we, it's sort of like the humanist take on the fishes and loaves miracle, right? Like my, I had this great uh, philosophy professor in college who was a atheist, but he loved the story of the fishes and loaves. And I asked him why, how, did, how does that work? And he goes, oh, think about it, man. It's beautiful. Everyone had food, but when they asked if anyone had any food to share, everyone hid their stuff. Mm. And then a little boy comes forward and says, Master, Rabbi, I have these two fishes and uh, loaves, mm -hmm. and, and anyone is welcome to it. Mm -hmm. And the master didn't make a big deal about everybody hiding their food, and the master didn't make that big a deal about the boy bringing his fishes and loaves either. He just broke them, prayed over them, thanked God for them, and then began to pass it out. And it turned out that everybody in the crowd opened up their baskets, and not just for themselves, but for their neighbor too. They shared, they passed it around. So much so that in the end, they took up baskets and baskets of leftovers, right, for the poor. Okay. That's the miracle. It's stone soup. Yeah, it's, it's stone, stone soup. soup. As, it's exactly, yeah, it's, it's yeah, stone yeah. soup. Yeah, it totally And I gotta is. tell you, I, I don't believe in the Thomas Jefferson take all the miracles out Bible, but told like that, <laughs> that's a story that'll preach even if you think Jesus is the son of God. That's... It's also a miracle. Yes! I mean, that's a miracle. Like, that's... Guys, sometimes miracles just means we all did the thing. Yes! So, yes! <laughs> like, sometimes, sometimes miracles... it just means we just let ourselves go a little bit and just did the thing, whatever the thing needed to be. That's a pretty good point, I think, to wrap this up on tonight, uh, Megan, or today. Sometimes a miracle just means we all did the thing. Go out and do the thing this week. That's 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 what we need do to it. do. Like, think about the ways in your own life. Think about, we didn't really get to how, we're, how we talk about money with our kids, but that's one way that I try in my own life to change this on a, on a cultural level. I don't have a whole lot of influence on that many people. Even the people that listen to this podcast or read my blogs or follow me on social media, I'm not really influencing them. Who I am influencing are my four children. They see me and the things that I do as well as the things that I say. And so both my own attitudes towards money and the lessons that I teach them about money, those are the ways that I'm trying to change this culture and our uh, attitude and relationship with money for the better. So um, go out there and do that thing this week. Must be nice. My kid doesn't pay attention to anything <laughs> I say. Or well, no, so look. <laughs> 
<laughs> Once again, look at you. No, no. Fantasy. So it's not about how much they pay attention. It's about you throwing it at them all know, the time and some of it I'm absorbs. Kidding. You yes, don't know. know. You don't know which lessons they're going to take. <laughs> no, it's amazing what they pick up after ignoring you for God knows how long. It's incredible. My final thought is is to think instead of thinking in the in terms of prosperity, think in terms of abundance, which sound like two very similar ideas, but they're really not. Abundance means we have plenty for everyone. Prosperity means that some people are deserving of everything, which is not true. It's perfect. Megan, where can they follow you on Twitter? Megan Romer, M-E-G-A-N-R-O-M-E-R. And you can follow me at The Rogue's Life on Twitter. You can follow us, Backslide, the number two glory on Twitter. And of course, everything is at backslidingtoglory.com. Subscribe and share the show with your friends. Uh, Give us a review in Apple Podcasts if you're up for that kind of thing. I think that's... A good review. Yeah. If you're up for a bad review, don't do it. Yeah, don't do that. Just keep it to yourself. That's not very abundant of you. (laughs) That's right. No scarcity (laughs) mindsets in our reviews. Uh, So anyway, until next week, uh, we've been your hosts. I'm Joel. I'm Megan. And we are all backsliding to glory. If you know someone who would enjoy backsliding to glory, please share the show with them today and send us your comments and feedback. Backsliding to glory at gmail.com or find us on Twitter backslide to glory. <laughs>